This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to the New Books Network on our channel, New Books and Geography. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Heather Goodall, author of Georgia's River Blues, Swamps, Mangroves, and Resident Action, 1945 to 1980, published this year by ANU Press. Dr. Goodall, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it, Stentor. It's a good uh, chance to talk to you and to your audience. All right. So to start us off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Okay. I'm a historian. I grew up on the Georges River, which is what this book is about, in an area in the estuary. And I'm writing about the saltwater part of the river, the estuary, the last part that's tidal and salt. I grew up there in the 1950s. Since that time, I've been working a lot with uh, Aboriginal people in New South Wales, particularly in Eastern Australia, but also in Central Australia. And I've collaborated on a number of um, life stories with Aboriginal people, and I continue to do that work. But working with them, I've become interested in their focus on land and waters, and I've increasingly taken up a role in environmental history. And that's the uh, position that I draw on in this book, although I've previously written about Aboriginal people on the Georges River as well. Okay. So for the benefit of our listeners who aren't as familiar with Australia, could you kind of set the scene, give us an overview of kind of where the Georges River is, you know, what its landscape is like, its relationship to Sydney and uh, the rest of Australia? Sure. The Georges River is on the east coast and the the lower part of it flows right through the city of Sydney. Um, it rises as a freshwater river on an area called the south coast of New South Wales, which is mountainous and a, 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 an area just inland from uh, the big industrial cities like Wollongong. The river flows to the north and then it, it curves and flows east through what are now the southwestern suburbs of Sydney. And this is an area which today is immensely multicultural and it is densely populated. So this is an area which really is, the Georges River really is a city river. And it's in the southern part of Sydney, so it's in the class structure, the way that Sydney works, the more affluent areas are on the northern side, the northern side of the main harbour where Sydney CBD sits. And 
in the southern area through which the Georges River flows, you certainly in the 1950s and 60s had predominantly working class populations, people who were labourers, they were factory workers, they may be small uh, business owners, they were tradesmen, people who were less powerful than those who lived in the northern suburbs. So it's a working class area. There were very few people with tertiary education. There were some teachers in the uh, in the areas along the lower part of the river, but they would have been the more the more um, educated and the more affluent of the uh, population there. Okay. And so in the introduction in the book, you have this very kind of humble statement that you, you don't think this book is sort of a full-on, more-than-human environmental uh, history. But if you don't mind, I want to kind of start by approaching it through that more-than-human uh, aspect, because I think in some ways the most interesting character in the book is the mangroves. So can you talk about how the mangroves reshaped the river during this period that you're uh, talking about in the book? Sure. I'll I'll really talk, um, certainly talk about the mangroves, but the three main themes of the book are entangled. So I'll refer to them. My origin, as I said, is as a social and political historian. And so I came to environmental history late in my disciplinary work, but I had, as I said, grown up on that river. And I had an absolute horror of mangroves. I thought they were um, dark and twisted and unpleasant places which, um, which crowded out the river. But I didn't understand a great deal about them. And the research for this book was a really exciting introduction to the river that I thought I knew really well. So mangroves, uh, oh, in the decades before I was born, in the early part of the 20th century, mangroves were occasional fringing plants along the edge of uh, often salt marsh areas, which we would today call wetlands. In those days, they were called swamps or marshes sometimes if you were being polite, but most people regarded them as swamps and wastelands. We know today that wetlands are incredibly rich environments which nurture immature species of fish and crustaceans and they're a wonderful rich area for particularly uh, bird life. And this was a way that the people who belonged to this part of the country, Darawal and Darug, peoples, um, the indigenous peoples who'd lived there for many thousands of years on this river, knew these places to be rich places right along the, uh, the water's edge, but particularly in the little bays. Now, mangroves, as I've said, were fringing plants and, and fairly scattered, in fact, along that, uh, those waterways. And most of the areas that were covered, that were low-lying areas, were uh, covered with salt marsh, so it was saline water, tidal water, as I said, and there were reeds and uh, plants which were succulents but quite low and what you saw as you look across the salt marsh is the reedy um, grasses. But if you look down through the grasses, you see water. These are waterlogged areas um, tidal so the tide goes through them in the daytime um, twice a day but uh, the the land underneath remains wet and and waterlogged 
until you get a little bit further, um, the ground rises a little bit and you get salt-tolerant plants. Now, what happened, uh, particularly in areas like Australia, in the urban areas, the Second World War, and I'll, I'll start from there because prior to the Second World War, because the water was saline on this part of the Georges River, the soil also wasn't very good. It was sandy and boggy in other parts. So there wasn't much agricultural development. It was a, a river which was a great river for fishing and for having picnics and, and exploring the bush, but it wasn't a heavily developed area prior to the Second World War. But the national government in Australia during the Second World War with the uh, the expansion of uh, the Japanese military around the edge of the Pacific and Southeast Asia, decided that the way to defend Australia better in the future was to industrialise to a greater extent and to increase the population. This is a massive continent and the cities are just along the edge and Sydney, as you know, is this, this first city on the eastern, southeastern edge. So the Georges River, with all these open, undeveloped spaces, was an area which was particularly hard hit by this development, the impact of the increasing siting of factories, uh, which uh, local population, as a not terribly powerful working class population, didn't have much power uh, to stop the, uh, the, the uh, siting of factories in the area and greatly increased population. Now, because it was a working-class area, there, were, there was very little um, sewage infrastructure. It had been built in the uh, pre-war period in the more affluent northern suburbs, but it wasn't built in the areas along the Georges River after the Second World War because there were so many new people that the government prioritised spending for a freshwater dam uh, the Warragamba Dam, in order to allow drinking water for the increased population. So what you found was that there was massive amounts of nutrients going into the river, pollutants from the new factories and nutrients from the human waste of this greatly expanded population. But we are also finding out that possibly there was early impacts from climate change along this river and so the river water levels were rising slightly. Now both the increased nutrients and the water level rises favoured the mangroves so the mangroves expanded. From about the 1940s and certainly the 1950s mangroves were seen to be expanding along the river and in the bays. And so the, the, the awareness of mangroves increased on the part of a great many people. Now, the mangroves themselves, for somebody like me who remembers the late 1950s and early 1960s, were dominant. They were very visible and they seemed to take a large, up, a large area. So what we didn't see was the ways in which mangroves worked to sustain um, the, the many species that really uh, relied on them for protection along the water's edge. So mangroves are important 
and they were changing. And I think the thing which even the conservationists, the resident action people who were the main focus of this book, what they didn't understand was that the more than human world, the world of non-human species was changing and it was changing in response to the, the rapid impacts of modernisation and uh, the increased population that the national government had decided should take place. Okay, so that makes a, a good bridge into then talking about the, the struggles that are going on during the period that you're writing about that have a lot to do with you know, conservation or development of these areas that the mangroves are, are growing into. Um, and you talk about this as a story of suburban environmentalism. So can you talk a bit about what makes this you know, kind of environmentalism different from what we might be more used to, to hearing about from this period focused on like conserving remote wilderness areas. Sure. The, the themes that, that um, help us to understand, I think, what's going on in a way that many of us didn't understand in the 60s and 70s while we were actually living there were that this was, this river really suffered the, the impacts of development and modernisation after World War II with this uh, rapid expansion of the industrial base along this river in the open spaces and massive increases in population. Now, Martin Melosi has written about this a lot in the United States. What we see in this period, and I can remember it a little myself, is not only uh, the massive increase in pollutants in the river and nutrients in the river because of the factories and the population, but there's also a, a great increase in the household garbage which is being produced. As the population is increasing, what's also happening is that the packaging industry has, has begun and is expanding so that everything that was happening in a changing economy with more uh, cash, which was occurring in the expanding economy of the post-war cities in Australia, there was a great expansion in household garbage. Now, at that stage in Australia, the full responsibility for disposing of garbage, as well as uh, well, sewage was a state responsibility, but garbage, garbage was a local government responsibility. And local government uh, aldermen and councillors saw the expansion of the mangroves, which was taking place for the very same reasons that they were experiencing difficulties. The expansion of the mangroves gave them an excuse because they, by definition, felt that mangroves were unsightly and species which harboured mosquitoes, which was an, a misinterpretation of the way the species operated in these wetlands. And they dis decided that they were not of use to the population. So the mangroves were the excuse to um, solve this garbage problem by digging up the wetlands, digging up the mangroves which were expanding, dumping rubbish there and at some stage when the rubbish had all been compacted, the intention was to build playing fields. And there are indeed a great many playing fields along the Georges River for this reason. This was the way local government saw to solve its garbage problem. Now, what that meant was that these areas were 
garbage dumps really for local government, but they felt they might curry some favour with the local sporting clubs. And remember, this is a working class area. So the idea of competitive sport as a discipline for young working class men. Remember, this is the period when there were rising fears about juvenile delinquency, about bodgies and widgies. And I might say we were uh, getting this, of course, from the same media that your American audiences were consuming. Um, the the uh, baby boom children were emerging as teenagers and young adults and working class youth particularly was seen as threatening to the overall authorities. And so the idea of involving working class youth in more and more competitive sports was a pretty attractive one. It was about discipline and control. So setting up playing fields was a goal that councils felt would win them approval and it would rid the areas of uh, these, these areas which were thought to be wastelands, which council disapproved. My suspicion is that there is some lingering PTSD as well, in fact, from the Second World War theatres of war in a tropical um, jungles. And those, those places were, it was the first time Australian soldiers had fought in a jungle environment. They, they had returned to Australia traumatised. The stories had spread widely. So the expansion of the mangroves was seen in that context as well. So Alderman really thought that this was this was the way to go to dig up the mangroves dig up the wetlands and dump the garbage there and ultimately make playing fields now to bring us back to the question of environmental action i think it's important to recognize that the local people who lived along this river who were in areas which are regarded as suburban they're not the inner city uh, CBD areas which are regarded as the exciting and innovative areas. They were suburban areas where people had been owner builders after the Second World War. They had fences and private blocks. But as Christopher Sellers has written about in the United States, these people did not see themselves as living only within their fence lines. They were living there because they wanted to be close to the river, to nature, to the broader region in which they felt themselves having access to the natural world. So these weren't people who were disinterested in the environment, even though they've often been denigrated. The major histories of Australian conservation, as happens in many other places, concentrate on the big environmental campaigns which focused on distant and supposedly wilderness areas which were thought to be supposedly again pristine to have been untouched by human beings the these in early environmental movements the big ones uh, were disinterested in indigenous peoples and they wanted pristine wilderness areas now the georges river was not pristine and it wasn't wilderness but local people who lived there cared about it this was their place this was why they were living there and so they started to organise to stop these council strategies of digging up the wetlands, digging up the mangroves and putting playing fields down. Local people didn't want large expanses of flat 
playing fields. And many of the local people, particularly the women, didn't want competitive sports to take over from the picnics and the social gatherings, which they had participated in in the interwar period, which were a much more important way of building community and building solidarity among neighbours, in their view, than were the competitive sports of rugby union and rugby league and Australian rules and the other sorts of uh, cricket and, uh, and hockey that were being played on these sports grounds. Now, these people at this stage were organising, the local people were organising around their little area of catchment so that what my book is about is it traces these um, environmental, local, resident action campaigns which were taking place one little bay after another. There was communication between them because many of them, the, the the East Hills one, which is the first one I write about, was taking place in the 1950s and early 60s and it tended to be self-contained. This was a group of people who who wanted to create a national park. They, they eventually achieved it after great heroic efforts of, of demanding attention from uh, state authorities and uh, local authorities, but it was taken away from them because this suburban river wasn't regarded as being pristine enough and their park wasn't big enough to be counted as a national park. So it became a state recreation area. The other areas further downstream was subject to these nineteen late 1960s, early 1970s pressures by local government to try and get rid of their garbage problem by digging up the wetlands. And Lime Kiln Bay is one of these campaigns, Poulton Park is another, and finally at the edge of uh, the big bay where Sydney Airport is, which some people may have seen as they arrived from overseas, um, there was an area which is um, also important to many people. All these areas were important to fishing people, to fishermen who lived along the river. All of the suburban people fished, um, but they also, uh, many of them fished from their tinnies, their little motorboats, um, but other people fished from the banks. And so there was an interest along the river in fish and river species, and keeping the river healthy was an important goal for many of these people, as well as keeping bushland, natural bushland, not flat playing fields, natural bushland in the areas. Each of these campaigns was a little bit different. The campaign around East Hills, the most um, upriver campaign that I talk about, which is the 1950s really, is... is um, really insisting that there needed to be open space. But some of the uh, members of what was called the Picnic Point Regatta Association, which reflected the interest in the river that people had, um, some of those people thought that the mangroves could be cleared a little bit. They were aware of them expanding and they did want access to the river to be sustained. But by the the, uh, campaigns that were occurring a little bit later, late 60s, early 70s, at Limekiln Bay and Poulton Park, it was quite clear that the councils were focusing on mangroves, that the mangroves were being denigrated and regarded as sources of uh, illness and as eyesores and, and that the councils would be doing everyone a favour by digging them up. 
And so the resident action groups began to focus on the mangroves too. And my argument is that the expansion of the mangroves, the changes and indeed the agency of these non-human species were changing both the opposition and the defence of these wetland areas. The mangroves became the focus of both the councils who wanted to dig them up and the local resident action groups who wanted to save them. Now, the important difference which we get into towards the uh, downstream part of the river is that this river had also been a place where oyster farmers had operated. And the oyster farmers had their oyster racks in the river, but they had been quite separate from the land-based suburban groups, if you like, the people who'd been owner builders and the the factory workers and the the small uh, businessmen who'd been um, living along the river and been beginning to consolidate their their holdings as more people came in. Um, The oyster farmers had been regarded as uh, a a different group altogether. What the Poulton Park campaign was able to do was to unite the land-based conservationists who were trying to save the mangroves and the bush with the oyster farmers and together they tried to defend the wetlands. They saw them, they saw the river quality and the water quality as important. Um, At the same time, there's gentrification going on in the lower reaches of the river as the economy is changing again. There's still no sewage. There's still no infrastructure to allow uh, uh, the the river to be protected. Um, But there is a lot of antagonism towards the oyster farming. And so the oyster farmers are needing to defend themselves again against the the affluent groups who are beginning to uh, settle in the waterfront areas of the lower river. And finally, the campaign that I look at is the campaign around Tara Point, which is um, at the entrance to uh, what's known as Botany Bay and close to where the airport is. The decision to build a new airport meant that there were going to be projections of the, the new runways into the bay and it would disrupt the currents and the situations for fishermen. As I said, fishermen were really important in all of these campaigns. They were the people who knew the river and they were the people who understood issues around currents and fish species. But as uh, the, the person who became the champion of the Tower Point area and who led that campaign was Bernie Clark. And Bernie Clark was a fisherman. And as he explained, he didn't know one plant from another and he didn't know anything about birds. He just knew about fish. But in the process of trying to save Tara Point from the impact of the airport and the dredging which was going to occur, what Bernie Clark did was learn. He learnt about mangroves and he learnt about migratory birds. He learnt about the bird life which had been potentially living in the area, in the swamplands and the mangroves. And he became a very well-known and indefatigable activist. He was so courageous and so tenacious and he really led that campaign and others along the river to protect the wetlands, to protect the mangroves and to protect and restore the river quality. So it's those local people 
people who weren't affluent, who weren't interested in or who weren't focused on pristine wilderness in some distant place to which they might travel if they ever had enough money for a holiday. These were people who were trying to save their local area. And in that sense, these are suburban people. They're living on blocks of land. They've got fences. They value that the privacy of a little bit of land and a garden which is the, the, the ways that the suburbs developed here in the south of Sydney, but they were working-class suburbs and they valued the river and its surroundings and its bush, and that's what they fought for. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay. Yeah, the, the airport part was particularly interesting for me because I've flown in and out of that airport. And so now yeah. I'm going to be, be thinking about this next time I have a chance to come down there and I'm looking out my window as the, the plane is landing or taking Please off. Please do. Please do. Tara Point, Tara Point is now conserved as, as um, a, a marine species uh, conservation area and a number of the people who are working on it are the Gamay Rangers who are Indigenous people. They're Aboriginal people whom the government at various stages tried to push away from the river but who are now looking after that country and ensuring that the, the, the marine life and the vegetation are uh, looked after and cared for and protected. And Bernie Clark spent the rest of his life planting mangroves along the river in order to protect uh, young species of fish. All right. Uh, so you've talked a bit about why you start the story in 1945 with the uh, effects of the Second World War. But so why, why end the story in 1980? What changes at that point that kind of brings the story that you're telling in this book uh, to its end? In, in 1980, there's a much greater, there's a shift in the state government um, and a shift in the federal government actually to taking much more responsibility for the environment. And so you end up with uh, regional centres for garbage disposal, for example, and and the um, the emergence of environmental uh, departments um, in both state and federal government, which begin to intervene to support the local. Uh, campaigners' attempts to improve the quality of the water, to improve the air quality, um, to try and control the outputs from the factories, as well as to uh, to, to try and shift the um, uh, the, the uh, attention um, to the natural spaces along the river. So you finally get the effect of the Ramsar agreement, even though Ramsar had been an agreement made much earlier in the 1970s, um, it, its impact wasn't felt in, in Australia, in, particularly in the city, until later on. And so you finally get recognition that these wetlands were important and were not to be dug up and have garbage dumped on them. Um, and you also get the adoption by state and federal governments 
of the sorts of environmental alternatives which were being proposed by these local campaigns. So the interesting, one of the many interesting things about these local campaigns is that they were they were recognising the problems that the councils faced in terms of massive garbage uh, accumulation as well as uh, human waste. And so they were proposing alternatives they were proposing recycling, and this was very unusual in the late 60s and early 70s, but it's now widely adopted and it's adopted in Australia as it is elsewhere. Um, problematically, obviously, as a lot of garbage has been shipped overseas, but nevertheless, this is much more an active part of the way state and federal governments in Australia see their role as being responsible for the, uh, the, the sustainable management of uh, human waste and household waste and garbage and certainly of industrial waste. So that that shift, it was finally the effect of um, a number of decades of action by environmentalists and my concern is that these suburban environmentalists have been ignored in the big history. They were the ones whose um, whose petitions, whose um, their their uh, visits to council, their uh, talking with neighbours, their gathering at the sites as educational sites for the wetlands to try and explain to people in the area why they were so important. All of that action had actually saved quite a lot of these wetlands. Some was lost because councils overrode them, but quite a bit was saved until the big changes could occur at state and federal governmental level. So there's still a long way to go, but these suburban activists have been ignored because they didn't write the histories. The histories have tended to be written by people associated with the the more well-known environmental activist organisations, which were the ones looking at the distant wildernesses, looking at the pristine, supposedly, wildernesses. Now, they still exist, the Australian Conservation Foundation and others have grown, and as central bodies, they've become important. And the attention to the history of the way environments were saved in Australia has, as it has in other areas, ignored these suburban environmentalists who put up such courageous fights for so long. Okay. And so most of the people that are part of these groups that you're writing about are white, or I think that the term they often use is Anglo-Celtic. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how that affected the way they were able to to do the activism that they were doing and also you know what their relationships were with some of the other groups that lived in that area including the aboriginal people of the sure sure i mean and this is this is a, a an interesting river in that each of the groups i've i've written um a, a book about aboriginal histories along the river up to the present and it's quite clear as you look at these environment activist movements of the 1950s and 60s and 70s that there was very little contact with the aboriginal people who continued to live on the river as they did um, each of the groups tended to look inwards to associate with themselves. So 
while Aboriginal people had much more awareness of non-Aboriginal people on the river, they weren't actively building alliances at that stage, either with the Anglo groups or with the incoming groups who included Arabic speakers and Vietnamese people after 1985. And it has only been in the very recent past, the last 20 years or so, that there has been a greater recognition of the importance of Aboriginal knowledge on the river. But even the groups that I'm talking about, the East Hills group, for example, and the smaller resident action groups, had an imagined uh, vision of of Indigenous uh, conservation values. And they saw themselves as honouring a tradition of Aboriginal conservation, which was in the past. So they they weren't making alliances with Aboriginal people. They weren't finding Aboriginal people. And clearly that would have strengthened their position. But at the period that I'm writing about, they were tending to, to work only within the Anglo group. Now, the other thing that's happened since the 1990s and onwards has been the reassertion and the, the uh, major recognition um, because they've been fighting for it, of Indigenous peoples in terms of their interests in land and water and the presence of Indigenous people, not only in remote areas, but in the middle of the city, people who had sustained their hold on, hold on the rivers, as I've written about in other places, who'd, who'd clung in there and who'd kept on advocating the importance of the quality of the water and the landscape, um, there was a greater recognition of their continued presence and of their continued role. And they have themselves taken up um, the organisation of building alliances with environmental uh, authorities, environmental departments of the Anglo structure and are involved in things like, as I said, the conservation at Tara Point. Now, there has yet to be strong alliances built between the incoming immigrant groups who are also extremely interested in the local environments. And again, I've written about this in another book called Waters of Belonging, where I've looked, I've talked with a number of Arabic-speaking Australians, some of whom are Mandaean and some of whom are Muslim, and they have different perspectives on the ways that water might be used. But water is incredibly important to both, and all of them fish, as do the incoming Vietnamese Australians, so that uh, and they too are living along this river. So issues about fishing and river quality are of enormous importance to everybody, Indigenous peoples, uh, Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Celtic as they are. There's a lot of Irish people along this river and Irish background people and Arabic speakers and Vietnamese Australians since 1985. So the river quality has been important for everybody and each of those groups has built up their pressure on the local and state authorities, local governments and state government, and increasingly the federal governments, to consider the, the health of the rivers that flow through cities. Not just to think about environment as some distant place, but to think about environment in the places where most people live and where there is greatest cultural diversity. Okay, so next I want to ask you about your research process. So how did you go about putting together 
all of the the data and the the information uh, and the also the photographs. Like this is a very uh, richly illustrated uh, book, so you had access to a lot of a lot of historical information to put this together. How yeah. did you yeah. go about accessing all of that and, and bringing it all together? Sure. Look, it's been it's been incredibly rewarding. I have to say, really rewarding. Um, all of the research that I've done on on the Georges River with Aboriginal people, with Arabic speakers, with Vietnamese Australians and with this uh, set of Anglo-Celtic groups has been strongly informed by oral history methodologies. So I've interviewed people often. Um, sometimes people like George Jacobson, for example, who was a real hero of the uh, East Hills attempt to get um, uh, to get an, a national park. Um, George Jacobson has died, but I've interviewed his kids and I've interviewed other people in the area. Um, I have drawn extensively, because I'm a historian, on state archives, obviously, um, because there's actually quite a lot of uh, state archives tucked away which we can draw on about Indigenous people, particularly along the river. But again, I've worked with oral history methodologies and I was able to interview uh, many of the people who um, had lived on the river at one stage or another who may have moved down to the south coast, for example, to communities down there or maybe living in La Perouse, which is on the uh, on Botany Bay. So that's on the eastern side of the airport as you come in. Um, they'd been forced out of the, uh, the the lower part of the river, but they'd survived. They'd stayed there. So I've interviewed many people there and I've interviewed, again, as I said, members of the Arabic-speaking communities and the Vietnamese-speaking uh, communities, the Vietnamese communities. So I've been, um, I've had a lovely time interviewing people and, uh, and they've taught me a great deal. They've often had very different experiences of the river than I had growing up. Um, uh, the the people of my age who were the children of uh, oyster farmers, for example, had a, a wonderful sense of belonging on the river. They could travel up and down on their families' punts. They really felt at home on the uh, the oyster racks and in the mangroves. And Indigenous peoples, um, the Aboriginal people whom I've spoken to who grew up on Saltbane Creek, just a mile or so away from where I grew up, who went to the same school I went to, uh, those people have been able to teach me also about not only where they came from and what the stories were about the country that they learned, um, but they've been able to teach me about their survival tactics and where they worked and how they got cash. And a number of those uh, Aboriginal people, for example, would gather wildflowers and they'd sell them for cash to the local white, the the, the Anglo-Celtic communities who were very big on uh, nationalism and uh, bushflowers and things like that. So this would give a bit of cash to the Aboriginal communities. But on the other hand, it was an opportunity for Aboriginal people to teach their young kids about medicines, medicinal uses of some of these plants and uh, the, the stories that were associated with them. So there's lots of ways that the, the work I've done has allowed me to bridge some of these gaps. These communities still tend 
to be rather inward looking and not to be in a lot of communication. But this is increasingly changing, I think, as we have the children and the grandchildren of Arabic speaking peoples who've come at different times through the history that white Australia calls history and uh, the Vietnamese people who've come since 1985 particularly, all of whom have different ways of uh, different cultural knowledge about water but all of whom fish in different ways in, including using different technology so it's been fascinating looking at the uh, at, at muslim technologies for uh, uh, for fishing which is a, involves a telescopic uh, a rod and there's all sorts of fascinating stuff so i've learned a great deal about the river and i've learned a lot about the people and i have understood better that the history that I saw and experienced was just a small part of the rich ways that many other people were experiencing the river at the same time. And it's it's really been a great privilege to try and put all of this together. Some of those photographs come from the people themselves. They've kept photographs of, uh, a, you know, a, a loved relation, a, a father or a grandfather, a grandmother doing the washing and the... the um, there was also quite a lot of military sites in these areas that were vacant and hadn't been developed after the First World War. And then um, there was um, a large area near Saltpan Creek, which became an American army hospital in the Second World War in 1942. And that then became an Australian Housing Commission hostel in the barracks in the uh, late in 1946, 47 and into the 1950s. Many Aboriginal people had been slum cleared, if you like, as the crowded inner city areas were um, broken up and they were brought to Hearn Bay, to this area um, in, in uh, near Saltpan Creek. So that area became a source where, a, a place where Aboriginal people were living as were other working class people and they were engaging with those Aboriginal people, the Darawal who had, uh, and, and Darawal who'd stayed on the river, who'd clung to it and the stories were passed on and people picked up a sense of responsibility to the river just like those people on in the resident action groups who'd been fighting uh, for the wetlands in the 1950s and 60s as well. So people with common causes to make the river healthier have started to come together, not entirely, but the books that I've been writing, the research I've been doing and the people I've been talking to have allowed me to learn a lot of wonderful, rich history about the river I grew up on. It's been very exciting. All right. Well, I think we've given our listeners plenty of reason to check out this book and your earlier books uh, about the river as well. So to wrap up here, we always like to end by asking what you're working on next. What's your next project that you're taking on? Well, I've got a, <clears throat> a number of projects, of course, but the one that relates to the Georges River is that while in the past I have written in separate projects about the different communities living on the river. This time I'm going to be looking at one tributary of the Georges River, the Saltpan Creek tributary, which is of course one I knew quite well. It was named very early and 
I don't think people were panning for salt there at all. I think it was called that because there was a lot of wetlands on it, as was another little creek nearby called Little Salt Pan. And there continue to be many low-lying wetland areas along the river. What I want to do is an account of the way water shaped that environment, which has become known as Saltpan Creek, down to the Georges River. And if I do something which starts from the early periods of colonial history, I will be covering a long narrative which um, opens up important stories of Indigenous presence on the river, resistance to colonialism and sustained presence on the river, but I will also be opening up stories about the way some of those wetlands were used for either factory siting or for housing for incoming groups brought in as factory fodder. And so I will be able to look at the cultural and ethnic diversity of the river um, by looking at this one area and thinking about the way water has developed it. Now, or has changed it, has shaped it. Now, if you come to the present, as the sea levels rise because of climate change, these areas which were the locations of factories and the locations of um, housing for often working class and impoverished people, housing commission areas, these are the areas that are flooding because of climate change. So if I take a history over 250 years of this one tributary, I will not only be looking at the social and political engagements of the various groups who are there, and there's been lots of power struggles between them, but I will be looking at the ways the environment has shaped those power struggles and the way that climate change is now impacting on an area which is right in the middle of the city. This is not the actual CBD, the, the, the inner city area, but it is now absolutely a part of the big suburban area, which is Sydney. So I'll be thinking about not only the history, but the climate change impact and the future of this, uh, this river. Right. Well, I'll definitely be looking forward to that. So, Dr. Goodall, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Great to talk to you. You just heard a conversation with Heather Goodall, author of George's River Blues, Swamps, Mangroves, and Resident Action, 1945 to 1980, published this year by ANU Press.